The whole point is that we have enough self-custody to where the system remains, you know, permissionless so that we don't turn into digital gold 2.0. Like that's the whole point. Maybe that's 20% of all Bitcoin. Maybe that's 30%. I don't, I have no idea, but it needs to be as much as we could possibly make it based on the consumer utility trade-offs. Hello there. How are you all doing? Are you having a good week? Rail Bedford won again last night. A massive result. 6-0 win, 10 games to go. We might win this league. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got my buddy Eric Yakes back on the show. Now, Eric's been on the show a couple of times, and today we're getting into the future of free banking. So when we recorded with Eric last time in the UK in August... He flew in to talk to us about this article he'd been working on, looking at Bitcoin banking in 2050. Me and Danny love the idea of looking ahead to what a hyper-Bitcoinized world might look like and how the banking system might change. Since then, he has been diving a lot deeper into the topic, so we asked him to come to New York and walk us through his vision for the future financial system, how Lightning integrates, and the role of federated mints, which, by the way, is something I'm still struggling to get my head around. But anyway... It's always fun to record with Eric. Love the guy. It was great to hang out with him, grab a beer. Now, if you've got any questions about this or anything else, you can drop me an email as hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, if you haven't checked it out, go and check out our Patreon. Loads of exclusive bonus content you can't find anywhere else. That is patreon.com forward slash whatbitcoindid. Eric. Pete. What the fuck do you want? <laughs> you need a hug, man. Oh, fuck, man. Danny, we should make shows after Rail Buffer Games. I did think that while we were watching it. I was like, "This is you're going to have to do some heavy lifting here. Well, right? I, I like walk in and I'm all like, you know, I'm walking over here. I'm like imagining, you know, oh, the, you know, all the lads are going to be together watching the game. And I walk in and everybody's faces are on the floor and I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> Danny, you might have to do most of the work here, dude. That's okay. <laughs> For people listening, watching, uh, we just watched the Rail Buffer game. We just lost. It's our third defeat in the league against the team we should have beat. It hurts, man. Honestly, no football, no football ever hurts as much as when this team loses. I yeah. take it so personally. I couldn't imagine. Uh, I got divorced, and each defeat is worse than the divorce. <laughs> I'm telling you, I tell, I felt shit when I got divorced. I feel worse. I feel so <laughs> crap. I feel like genuinely like fuck this, <laughs> fuck New York, fuck Danny, fuck Jeremy, <laughs> fuck you, Eric. You made me not as scared to get divorced now. Oh, man, honestly. You all get married first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so weird, right? It's so exciting to buy this team and yeah. think we might win the league and have this go on this adventure. Uh, do you have like an NFL team? Yeah, Denver Broncos. Uh, yeah, so you used to support a team that sucks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm only joking. I don't know if they suck. Oh, it's horrible, man. Uh, Russell Wilson has been a nightmare. Well, like, so I... Coach. I grew up supporting in Liverpool, right? And like, we have some defeats and this shit and then like, it's whatever, you get on. But this is like, it's like someone goes and puts a knife in me and they turn, right. they drag it through me and then they point and laugh. You're like going to bed every night, like, oh, the game tomorrow, it's going to be great. Yeah. I can't yeah. wait. And now it's like, well, this fucking sucks. I hate this. <laughs> anyway. So how, should you buy your hometown team? Oh man, I tell you what. You gotta get some thick skin yeah. to deal with this stuff because because it has so much more meaning, right? Right, totally. It's like before it's like I wanted my team to win. I'll tell you find something interesting, right? When England within the Euros, by the way, people listening right now are gonna be like, 
when the fuck you're not talking about Bitcoin? <laughs> uh, when, um, when England were in the Euros, right, uh, I followed England and Euros, the World Cups, and they've always gone out. It's always been really miserable. Yeah. And then the Euros, we got to the final and I went to it. And when we lost, I was kind of like, okay, I was like, oh, we lost. And I think what it was, I had this realization afterwards. I was like, well, if we'd have won the final, what did, what did it actually mean? Yeah. Like, what does it mean? Yes, you've won, but what does, it, what does it mean? When I leave, what does it mean? Right. It doesn't mean anything. Right. But when you go out in like the semis or the quarters, it, it does mean something because it means you miss that next game. Yeah. Once you get like the journey, it's all about, I realize it's all about the journey and staying in. Mm-hmm. And of course you want to win. But this isn't about the, the, the journey's fine. <laughs> it's about the winning. It's like, this is my home team. This yeah. is my hometown. I want my hometown to have something successful. And the fuck the journey is just like, we got to win. Right. And you effectively have like a budget built out in your mind of like the long term, we need to hit these wins to get to this place. Yeah. Every single time you fall short of that, it's like, oh shit. Yeah. And like, we were in a good position. We went tonight with nine points clear. It's like nine points clear, 13 games to go. This is good. Mm-hmm. Now it's six points clear, 13 games to go. But the team we're going to be six points clear of, we play next. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so, like, they call that a six-pointer because it can go either way, right? If they win, right. we win. Anyway, listen, Eric, good to see you, man. How are you, brother? Feeling good. I think we got to bring the vibes up in here. Yeah, come on, man. Yeah, like, yeah, I'm yeah. Good. I'm like, like, I'm over it. We're come good. On. We're good. We're good. We're, we're ready good. to we're ready to talk about banking and stuff. Yeah, let's talk about Bitcoin. Let's <laughs> talk about the end of the world. Um, how you been, though? Like your book's been out. What, how, long you, how long has your book been out now? It's been out over a year now. Wow. Um, and I've been good. Uh, I've been working a bunch and, you know, there's kind of like, I'm setting up a fun thing. I won't go into like too much detail around it, but, um, but yeah, I just been working pretty heavily building in the bear market and yeah, it's been good. I haven't been as active on Twitter. I also feel like Twitter is kind of, it's different. Yeah, it is. The vibes are off. Yeah. Well, so, uh, it's like that community you build around Bitcoin, Mm. it's harder to get to it now. Elon Musk has made this decision. He thinks he wants to give you the be the front page of the internet. Yeah. Or the front page of Twitter drama. Right. And so, like, you know, if you post something about shooting down a, a fucking balloon, make a joke about it, you get 2,000 likes. You post something about Bitcoin, you get 200 likes. Like, right. I've noticed that. And yeah, it's same. just like, huh? This is, this is a bit shit. Yeah. Are you on Nostra? Uh, I am. The UX is just tough for me right now. I'll like hop on and I'm kind of playing around with it still. Um, but I, I definitely noticed it on Twitter too. It was funny too. I took one of my tweets from the bull market that, you know, did very well, got like a few thousand likes and I just copy pasted it just to like test and see how much engagement it would get this time. And it was like a third. Well, what was the tweet? Was it like Bitcoin's going to the moon? Oh, (laughs) Oh, you know what? I probably actually shouldn't say because it's related to a certain person. Right. You know I'm going to go and have a look now. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. He, I think he's kind of fucked it up. I think he's kind of... I agree. I think he's fucking it up. It's going way worse than I expected it was going to go. Yeah, I think the reality of, uh, you know, he got to he got to do like his dog whistle to everyone who was kind of, dog whistle, is that a bit unfair? He basically, Bitcoin, uh, sorry, Twitter was very left. Yeah. And I think we all knew some weird stuff was going on. And he, he's got to like do his fanfare drama around that and like interesting stuff. Those Twitter files are interesting. And then he's like sacked a bunch of people and said, yeah, we're too many people employed. I think, I think we're starting to realize why those people are employed. <laughs> right. And now he's fucked with the algorithm so much. Like, I think a lot of people are like, this just isn't as good anymore. It's, yeah. 
and we, we we joke it's i think the algorithm is looking for violence that's interesting yeah i just like it, because of how it works now i just like i don't have the same urge to get on as much yeah and, like post and the engagement's off and i don't like what i see usually and is that because it's like bear market vibes as well? It's probably, it's part of it. But like the general, like I, I hate the for you column. Um, I hate that. The, it's yeah. like so annoying. I like, thought that was new, but Pete said that's been in there for ages. No, maybe it is new. Maybe it is new. Because I, I, I never noticed that before. And now it's like, I always have to like click back over to following. And then I do that. And then like the engagement's bad. And then like, um, it's probably bear market too. But mm. like. But hold on. We've been in a bear market for a long time. True. It wasn't like this. It's, right. That's it's, good post, point. it's post Elon. Yeah. And I, I guess there's some kind of thesis behind it of some kind of more engagement that leads to them being able to sell more ads or something. I'm just getting constant ads for the athletic at the moment. Yeah. Constant ads. Yeah. I'm like, how much are they spending? Yeah. I feel like every fourth tweet, I see some credit card ad something yeah um but it's kind of like i think you broke twitter dude right yeah it sucks i don't like it as much yeah um and that's a shame because you you kind of want to be in your cohort right and uh, that's why i kind of like nostra i like i i got it at first i was like the ux sucks but then i realized that there's a good cohort of bitcoin it's right, a good right. conversation yeah no distraction um i mean maybe you can build some bitcoin lists and work with that but i was just like why why he put a thing up yesterday. I ended up deleting my replies. Like, what feature do you most want from Twitter? And I replied, you to undo every change you've made. <laughs> but, you know, here's what it is. Got him. Right, man. So we uh, we spoke about the banking system last time. You've been going further down this rabbit hole, right? Yeah, I've been digging deeper into it. I think for perspective, the you know, the last thing we were talking about was a lot more theoretical. Yeah. Which I was like, this is where you kind of need to start and then you can start building more into practical applications. Now I'm digging more into the practical side of it. And uh, still a lot a lot of theory. This is obviously like very prospective and I'm assuming quite a bit about the future. But also what I'll say is that I think when you get into the practical side of it, I think, you know, 2023, 2024, there's a lot of this stuff is actually going to start to emerge. And um, and that's what makes this really interesting. I think it's actually pretty near term when we have new protocols that are being built, like going back to Nostra too, I think some of these other protocols that are going to be leveraging Bitcoin in some form and they're not financial applications or anything, um, potentially could be, it's just a you know network system. But um, some of these things that people are using, I think there's a lot of interesting things that are on the horizon in terms of like, layers on top of Bitcoin and peer-to-peer -peer technologies that, um, yeah, there's some cool stuff coming up. But that being said, a lot of the stuff still in, you know, what I've been reading into is still kind of based on at least like 10 years and then some things like 40 years, you know, who knows. But Right. And so if we had to kind of crystallize this for the listeners, how would you explain what it is you're trying to figure out here? Like what's the kind of you know, yep. the, the kind of like yep. elevator. Yeah. So like, here's why this is important to me. Um, with, you know, I, so like when I jumped into this industry, um, you know, I was working in traditional finance and then I was, it got to a certain point where I understood, number one, I had to understand Bitcoin well enough. And number two, I realized, oh, this thing actually can't really be stopped at this point. Like it's spread too far. And once it got to that point, I was like, I, you know, the risk changes significantly in your mind. And you're kind of like, okay, if this thing's going to go, then where is it going to go? And I think that now Bitcoin's going to end up somewhere between, you know, this idea of like digital gold 2.0 online. That's probably like 
acts around my worst case scenario. Um, there's nuance to it, but generally speaking. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there's we have a apolitical global monetary system that could emerge. And that's like best case scenario. So in that worst case scenario, you believe that it will sit alongside fiat currencies, potentially CBDCs. Right. It sits as like a store store of value in some form. You know, maybe the East starts to adopt it for trade. And, you know, there's centralized functions that are bottlenecking its use as, a, as like, you know, a freedom money. But on the whole, it's still like, you know, achieve the market size of gold or comparable to. And, um, and, you know, that's good. That's good for Bitcoin in a lot of ways, but it's not what I'm here for. You know, I'm here for the other end of the spectrum, a political global monetary system that enables freedom within society and reduces, you know, the power of governments across the world. So, like, I think that a lot of these technologies that are starting to emerge today are going to be pivotal in us getting to that other end of the spectrum of we have an alternative financial system here. Um, and that needs to be built out in the right ways. And there's a lot of missteps that I think can happen along the road in terms of centralization, in terms of um, you know custodial operations, in terms of the ability for a government to you know keep it as just like a reserve asset. But um, that that that's really what I think is interesting, um, and what what I think is really important to understand about this, because like right now we're looking at an eight hundred trillion dollar market of global assets, or you know somewhere around there and a $500 billion market size of Bitcoin. And the question kind of becomes, how much of global assets will it consume? And, you know, also a big piece of that is how much will credit exist? Because, you know, it, not perfectly true, there's a variety of ways credit can emerge, but um, depending on how credit emerges, it could actually offset the amount of like market capture that Bitcoin has over time. So I think that, um, I think that's a really important question. Like for people listening that are thinking about what's the price of Bitcoin going to be in a hundred years? Well, how the banking system around it builds out will impact that pretty significantly. If we had some sort of like fractional reserve system, um, and you know, this is just hypothetical. I don't think this is going to happen. But if we had like a fractional reserve system and credit was still like very prevalent, that could cut fifty percent of the market size. If you think about the world as like a big balance sheet of assets that are being created. Um, if there's no credit in the world, then Bitcoin would represent all those assets. But depending on how that credit comes out, it could actually be used as an alternative form of money, which means Bitcoin's market size is smaller by that degree. So I think, yeah, I just think it's really, really big question. And I think that there's a lot of um, technologies that are emerging that can that are going to be impacting this kind of in the near term. Why, why do you think we could end up in a world of no credit? Uh, I don't. I don't think that's true. I'm just like using extremes okay to make the example um but that's like um people speculate like maybe bitcoin water hit 100k if it wasn't for ftx it's like the same thing but on a larger scale right yeah it's and it's not like i i wouldn't call it as much like the same thing because it's um it's not fraudulent yeah yeah it's it's not like fraudulent there's there's this kind of goes back to our last episode, but you know, hypothetically, if we have a free banking system emerge, um, and free banking is associated with the concept of fractional reserve banking, so it's really more like if we have a fractional reserve system emerge on top of Bitcoin, I number one don't think that's like the end of the world. It's not what I think is ideal, nor do I think it's like a certainty. There's a lot of people that I think is. I was on George Gammon's podcast, and he's kind of like a big advocate of that and thinks that that would be the case. 
I think that there's a lot of unique properties of the technologies and some of these emerging protocols that could actually regulate that system so efficiently that it's very hard to run a fractional reserve institution, in which case it'd be much more like a full reserve system. Um, so if we're in a full reserve system, then there's still ways that like credit will be emerging. Credit still has a valuable function, um, but- It'd be more expensive. It'll be, yeah, it'll be, and it comes down to like supply and demand, right? It's it, when people, it, like if you, it's hard to think about these questions in a static format because everything affects like everything else in a lot of ways. But like, yeah, you get like all else equal. If there is less of a supply of credit, then yeah, it's more expensive. But, um, you know, the way in which people are accumulating wealth and how they're capitalizing themselves, um, there's a lot of things that can also bring the demand for it down too. Yeah. So it's kind of like, where does the market settle in terms of price? And a lot of people look at it from that perspective. And it's kind of like, it, 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 I, I, you know, I, I have no idea, but like what I, I think a better way to look at it is rather than from like this bottom up view, um, from a top down view where you're like, okay, what's the total market size? Will there be some proportion of credit that exists? What will that be used for? And what I think the answer to that boils down to, like there's some people who think like, I think if you like hear like really extreme Bitcoiners and they'll, you know, they'll cite things like Jeff Booth's thesis and they'll say, um, you know, technology is going to advance so rapidly and productivity is going to be so fast and Bitcoin's once fully uh, captured the market of money is going to give people so much wealth that we won't need credit. And it's like, I don't really think that's true at all. I think that you can really reduce the amount of credit necessary. Like today in our system, we have this system that's, you know, all credit, money is credit. So we're obviously at the you know, furthest extreme for what credit could be. But I think that that could be reduced very significantly. The question is, where does it come out to? And the reason that I think there's no way it could ever possibly go away is, you th think about it from like an entrepreneur's perspective. You, you know, ha have an expectation about the future. You want to go start this business. You think it'll be valuable to the world. And because of that, you're going to earn some sort of like economic yield. You're going to build value from creating this business. So you have to either finance that with savings, which Bitcoin will probably help quite a bit with. People have more savings. You'll probably see quite a bit more businesses that are organically financed by the savings of the entrepreneur. Certainly true. That's not gonna be true in every scenario. You know, There's still scarcity of resources. There's gonna be a poor guy who's a genius who wants to go start this great business and he's gonna to wanna to go get financing for that. Well, there's also plenty of people out there who are very wealthy who still take on, uh, still borrow money to start businesses. Totally. Because they just they want to uh, they want to spread the risk to other people. Yeah, because yeah, we're incentivized to do it in our system. I mean, there's tax benefits from it. It's like that, that, that's one of the biggest. Like whenever I get into this debate, this point comes up. Um, I mean, we're fundamentally incentivized to take on debt. Like you should take on a mortgage of two hundred thousand dollars and basically just like perpetually roll that thing over. Like there's so many advantages to doing that. So like whenever there's like really cheap debt and there's tax benefits to taking it on, then it makes a lot of sense to do it. But like if you hypothetically, if you like even remove that incentive, then it's like, well, why do you want to take on debt? Um, and it's if I'm an entrepreneur and I want to finance my business, then I can choose equity or I can choose debt. Equity is effectively just perpetual debt. It's debt you have the rest of your life until you like buy the guy out. So would I rather give this guy ownership and decision-making over my business and have a perpetual liability with him? Or would I rather just have a liability that I have fixed for a period of time I'm optimistic about my business. I know that I'll be able to pay it off at a certain point, in which case I still own the whole business. So like, as long as there's a demand for a cheaper form of financing like that, 
there's always going to be demand for debt in some form. And, and when you talk about the spectrum, you talk about your worst case scenarios, Bitcoin is gold, digital gold, gold 2.0, right. and your best case is apolitical global money. Uh, and that's what you're here for. Mm. Um, is that because if we were only digital gold, will you feel like we've missed an opportunity here? Is there something a little bit more ideological, like the way, the way you see the world, we need this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like if... Um if we if we don't make Bitcoin an alternative monetary system, then I struggle to see how we'll do it without some sort of new crazy invention that nobody else expected. So it's like we pretty much have to make it work this time. And if it's just digital gold, then we'll have, you know, we'll have some sort of potentially reserve standard system again, which is fine. Um, but it's it's really not solving all the problems that we have. Mm. And I, I wonder, or I worry with something like that is that people would lose interest in it because there isn't a big enough mission behind it. Right. Yep. If if, if we were just digital gold 2.0, this show kind of loses purpose. Right. It's like, what the fuck are we going to talk about? The gold podcast. It's going to be like the digital Peter Schiff show. It's boring as shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, but it's just boring. It's like, right. what are we going to talk about? Like, There's nothing to talk about. Gold went up 5% today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but if you look about the kind of shows we make right now, we it's a, you know we're talking about energy markets. We're talking about nuclear we're talking about the imf the world bank we're yep. talking about malinvestment we're talking about uh, incentives around political cycles we're talking about all the things where poor incentives allow that central ruling class to fuck everything for everybody else yep and we all recognize bitcoin as this kind of fairer system and i mean even to the point where uh jason meyer do you know jason meyer no he's a guy who was on our show it's a progressive guy he's mm -hmm. writing this book a progressive case for bitcoin uh, really, really great guy. I think I was, I keep telling him, you've written the most important book for conservatives. And the reason it's the most important book for conservatives is that if this is seen as a tool of the letter of the right, we failed. And so conservatives yeah. do not want to fight Democrats on Bitcoin. They want to work with them because it's money. Yeah. It's like fighting them on the dollar. So you've made, written the most important book for conservatives because conservatives should want Democrats to get it, understand it, and not fight about it. Right, right. Hence apolitical. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. And like that, that's incredibly important. I think that when I, when I think about all the benefits from it, I mean, the biggest thing that I see, here's what I think is like so unique about how it can change things. It's, the, the question kind of becomes like, why do you want your government to be powerful? Because they provide your security. You know, it's like kind of naive to a degree. If, if we were just to un go undermine the US government tomorrow and if, you know, all their military power disappeared, now we're all a huge at risk and a bunch of horrible things could happen to my family. So I don't want that. What I do want is for all of the governments simultaneously to start to reduce their amount of power. And like, that's what's unique about Bitcoin is it creates a possibility where like, if we have some sort of massive currency run in 20 years, like, boom. That's how you do it. That's the only way to do it. And and yeah, that's it's kind of crazy. And we got to make that work. And in part of this, you, you've decided to kind of like nail down and start thinking about how, I say the banking system, it's really the, the entire financial system works. Like what is the reality of this? And, and I guess during that period of we are here now where we are with Bitcoin, $500 billion asset, you know, lots of cooler, interesting things happening, this future scenario, which may be, 10, 20, 30, 50 years away, in between them, we've got parallel systems. Yep. 
but you are spending your time thinking about this transition to this pure Bitcoin financial system, pure Bitcoin banking system. Right. And, and, and like, and also, and I'm probably, I think the next step is going to be for me to go deeper into like how that's bridged. So yeah. like, I'm trying to figure out the long term um, and where we could get to. And then that's obviously a very vague idea. But once you kind of have that end goal in mind, then you can start saying, okay, well, what technologies do we have today? What's needed to get those to the scale that's necessary to make the system happen? Then you know, therefore, these are the technologies that should be invested in today. So like, I have a little bit of understanding around some of that. And I have a few ideas, but there's, you know, it's endless amount of information and knowledge to start working on. Well, you have to have a thesis. Right, right, right. Yeah. So like my, my thesis is basically, I expect, or I hope for number one, that we have a market-based system. I think that that's just the most paramount aspect of how this all builds out, whether it's fractional reserve, full reserve, whatever it is, I just hope that it's chosen by the market of whatever it should be. And really it's like, you know, Bitcoin has, you know, three kind of primary problems. It's, uh, you know, transaction throughput, which lightning is, you know, devised as a solution to, and we'll see if it gets to scale. And then we have privacy, which is another fundamental issue and programmability, which isn't a fundamental issue, but it's been much slower than like the rest of the crypto ecosystem in certain ways um, for good reason. But I think that, you know, when I think about technologies that can benefit that, I think the Fediment protocol actually has a very interesting proposition for how they can solve kind of the privacy and programmability aspect of it. And this when I when I think about that, it's kind of like I bring this back to in the first chapter of my book. I talked about how you know throughout history, there's always been multiple forms of money within an economy. So it's kind of this Bitcoin narrative that we would only have one form of money, and it's like, well, obviously it won't be crypto. You know, of course that was an absurd proposition, but will it be, you know, maximally one form of money? And I was always like, well, there's kind of three reasons. There's uh, um, information opacity. And throughout history, it's kind of like, you know, you're a tribe, you got money. Another tribe shows up, they got different money. I don't know how to verify your money. We're not gonna use your money. Um, and there's things like that. The internet today is like largely reduced a lot of that. Um, and then the other big ones like, you know, today is sovereign coercion. We have a lot of currencies because it's in a government's interest to issue their own currency. So that's why we have so many. And then um, the last one's monetary utility trade-offs. So like from a fundamental perspective, thinking about money, there are trade-offs that exist. So when you think about the problems that Bitcoin has, how, how are we resolving that? It's like, well, Lightning Network's one. Um, and it's funny because like, you know, people refer to lightning as Bitcoin. It's like, well, you can kind of make an argument that it's actually a separate, you know, asset. It doesn't have the exact same properties as Bitcoin. Therefore, it is different. Um, and it's, it's more a semantic argument than anything. Like as long as markets practically view it as fungible with Bitcoin, then that's probably really all that matters. But like you can make the argument that, well, Bitcoin, you can keep in cold storage. Lightning, you got to keep in a hot wallet. So it already has different risk properties. You have, you know, state channels that have a channel capacity that limits, you know, how much you can actually send. Bitcoin doesn't have that. So it, it is fundamentally different in terms of how you can use it for the sake of its utility. That's why we had to create a separate network. Um, and then you get into like eCash, which is used by Fediment. And I think that, you know, that could be another potential avenue for that because it solves like privacy and pro programmability. So it's like, you know, 
and we can get into this, but like if, you know, hypothetically that was something that emerged, then we'd effectively have kind of like three monetary mediums. And like, you know, throughout history, we typically saw like dual monetary standards. So maybe we cut the semantics, call lightning Bitcoin and say we have like a dual monetary standard. Um, but nonetheless, there's problems that need to be solved and we're solving them with currently two different networks. And if we had a third network step in, I think that that could be potentially valuable. So my thesis right now, and this isn't like, I don't, I don't want to call it a thesis because it's, it, it's not certain, it's a curiosity um, that I'm digging into. But um, I think that an eCash system of federations around the world is actually probably a viable optimization that could bring us to like a Bitcoin native banking system. Okay. Yeah. Well, so we've covered Fediment. We've had Obi on the show before. Mm. Uh, not everyone will have listened to that show. Um, and I think more may go back and listen to it now after hearing this because uh, people are really drawn into the shows where we do talk about the banking system or mm -hmm. macro of the future. So just for those people who haven't gone and listened to that, yep. don't know what Fediment is, can you just explain what it is? Yeah, so, it, you know, and I'm gonna, I, I think it's kind of good to like build it up fundamentally because when I first heard about Fediment, I was like, I don't, I don't really think that's a great idea. Yeah, I dismissed it, by the way. Yeah, I, there was a lot of things about it. I'm like, oh, I, I have no idea how that works. But the kind of the deeper I got into it, I was like, oh, number one, I didn't understand it well enough. And then number two, um, I had a myopic perspective about how things work in the world. And, and you know, for me growing up in suburban America, it didn't make any sense to me. But if you go down to Africa and you actually understand how, you know, societies are structured, it's kind of like, oh, well, it actually like fits kind of nicely into how they operate in general. Um, but anyways, I think a lot of it kind of boils down to, you want to start with understanding like how trust works for people. And it's like, Right now we have this, you know, 2022 was the year where we realized, or, you know, the average individual who's involved in crypto realized that third-party custody is a pretty bad thing and really bad things can actually happen. And, you know, Bitcoin maxis aren't crazy. So when that occurred, it's like, now a lot of people are drawing into self-custody and then self-custody is the other end of the spectrum. And we have people within our community that all understand that. And they're like, okay, self-custody is good. I can spend the time to learn that. But when I think about what my mom is going to do for her Bitcoin, it's like, well, how does that work? My mom has got cold storage Bitcoin. I manage it. It's effectively my cold storage Bitcoin. She has no idea how to use it. Yeah. So like, that's one of the problems is that like not everybody is going to want to learn how to do self-custody and maybe in the long term like you know 50 years from now whatever the generation is below gen z is like everybody manages it themselves it's like brushing your teeth or something well i think that will come down to the tools we have at the time mm. uh that like i i bash the i kind of constantly bash people with this one but my dad there is zero chance he could set up a yeah, cold same. storage yeah you could show him and he could write it down. But when you explain to him, look, by the way, if you get this wrong and you lose your Bitcoin, there's no customer service, it's gone. Mm -hmm. He's he's going to be too nervous to use it as well. Right, right. And so even if he could technically learn it, I know he wouldn't have the confidence. Yep. And there's always going to be people who do not have, one, the technical skills or the confidence to do it. Yep. And, and they should not be excluded from our system because of that. Right, right. I agree. And, and, and for a lot of those people, it's not even like a misunderstanding of Bitcoin problem. It's a just general technology education problem. It came at a later point in their life. They didn't feel like learning it. And now it's like developed so rapidly and they're just like, oh, shit, I got to miss the boat on this one. Yeah, and we have to understand that you know, we live in a t 
in the world of technology. And when ChatGPT yeah. comes out, we're all playing with it straight away. And when the next thing comes exactly. out, we will play with it. It's native to us. It yeah. is not native. My dad probably doesn't even know ChatGPT Chat exists. Yeah, same. My mom has no idea. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, I think from that perspective, it's like, okay, so we have a market of people with different demands and interests. Um, if we're going to be trusting something, is it better for my mom to use a third-party exchange or just to, you know, trust somebody within her family? And, and that's kind of the idea is that, like, you know, anecdotally in my life, it's like I've helped a lot of other people in my life get into cold storage. They, I give them constant handholding on how to do things, and I get them set up. Um, and I think, like people kind of naturally operate in that way. There's people within communities and within you know, their families who have certain specialties and skills and people trust one another and support each other. And I mean, you can tie this all back to like evolutionary theory with, um, so it was, uh, you know, John Maynard Smith, like the reason that, uh, you know, humans have probably outpaced every other, not probably because we have outpaced every other um, biological organism is because we could cooperate so effectively. And, and that was something that allowed us to organize and specialize and like build the societies that we have today. So, uh, you know, there was um, uh, John Maynard Smith, he had this, uh, he posited that basically it's called the evolutionary stable strategy. And that's that we naturally evolved to find Nash equilibrium when we're making strategic decisions, which means we evolutionarily evolved to cooperate. We don't just think in our own interests. We can think in terms of other people and their perspective, and then we can find a common ground that makes us both better off by cooperating. And it's, it's unique to our genes that we can do that. So that's a really interesting piece because we already naturally have an affinity to do that, which requires trust. Um, we're also very good at picking up on cheats and cheaters because of that. Whenever you have like a hunch or something or you don't trust somebody, it's like that is a subconscious, uh, you know, evolved state that you've gotten to not trust a certain person. Um, so like that's really good because we can optimize around that. The other, there's another like hypothesis called the social risk hypothesis. And that's it. like depression is this um, adaptive risk averse trait that we have from social um, uh, exclusion. So when we, a lot of people get depressed because they're excluded from social groups and you can see how like bullying is so bad for that. Um, and that's another thing too, is like, not only did we adapt to cooperate, but we're also negatively conditioned at a genetic level to not be a part or, um, to make sure that we don't get excluded from communities. So like that, that's a really interesting piece too. Um, so when you think about it from that perspective and you think about how communities work, and if you look at countries like Africa, where we have all these like agricultural economies where people are living in communities and they are trusting each other for various different functions, it's kind of like, okay, you know, if you're going to trust, then trust your community. And we can optimize trust base around that. So when I think about custody and it's kind of like, how should we be optimizing custody? Well, it's like, it's number one, it's a free market. Anybody can do whatever they want, but I think that having a solution that enables us to optimize for custody at a community level is pretty valuable and compelling when you think about how humans work. So that was kind of like the first piece that I got into when I was like, okay, it's actually very interesting. That was the first thing that turned me off to Fedemine. I was like, oh, Federation, like, you know, side chains kind of did that. Um, side chains didn't get a ton of traction. This show is brought to you by my new sponsor, Iris Energy. Now, I'm really pleased to welcome Iris Energy as a sponsor to what Bitcoin did. Now, you've probably noticed recently that we've been increasingly covering Bitcoin mining on the show. And as the team at Iris Energy share mine and Danny's values, they're such a great fit for what Bitcoin did and you, the listeners. 
Now, Iris Energy is a leading owner and operator of institutional-grade, highly efficient Bitcoin mining data centers, which are powered 100% by renewable energy. They manage this by targeting low-cost, underutilized renewable energy, where the company can also do very cool work supporting local communities. They build, own, and operate their electrical infrastructure and proprietary data centers and are led by a seasoned management team with an impressive track record of success across energy, infrastructure, renewables, finance, digital assets, and data centers. I love these guys, and they know that Bitcoin mining can be done sustainably, supporting the Bitcoin ecosystem as well as supporting energy transition. If you want to find out more, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y dot C-O. Next up, we have Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. With everything that happened last year in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach, as they don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. To find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Next up, we have Ledger. Now, the importance of self-custody has never been clearer. This last year has been full of reasons to get your Bitcoin off exchanges, and Ledger makes that so easy for you. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And I've been a Ledger customer since 2007, and I absolutely love the products, and I'm still using the same Nano S I bought back then. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Also today, we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other, BitCasino is the best online casino for Bitcoiners. And with 24-7 live chat support, you can get all the help you require. To find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-M-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. I think you've explained why Fedibank will work on a kind of like social and psychological level, but <laughs> like, but what actually is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. So yeah, um, yeah I, I want to build to it, but it's basically like that was the first thing that kind of made me realize like, okay, people operate this way. So like, how does the technology actually work? Um, a federation is just a multi-signature. So um, if you are going to send Bitcoin, there is a multi-signature, which can require some threshold amount of keys in order to send it, which requires you to cooperate with another person to send Bitcoin from that address. So that's just one layer with Fediment. Fediment is just a multi-signature address. If you have, you join a community, they have a multi-signature address, you send your Bitcoin to that address and they're now custodying it for you. So and we could pretend in this room, that's a community, it's yep. you, me, Danny, and Jeremy. So we we would pick the leaders of our community who we trust the most. 
Mm-hmm. So that'd probably be me and Danny. Yeah, fair. And, um, and then you guys would send us your Bitcoin into the multi-sig. And then there's this whole separate layer of software that they use. So like once it's within, you know, all these guys have, you know, just think about it like servers within their homes. And we'll call it me and Danny. Both Danny and I have to agree to send Bitcoin away from this so we could collude against you and Jeremy. And we could say, all right, we're going to send off your Bitcoin. Um, and we're just going to take it. We're going to go have a night in Soho. And um, I think that when... You think about that, it's like, okay, that's a pretty big risk. It's also a risk in centralized custody as well, that people cooperate and can do certain things. I mean, we look at what happened with FTX and it's like, who was even in control of the funds? Like there was basically like one guy in control of the funds. So when you think about it like that, it's like, okay, when you compare it to third-party custody, it's actually a lot better because there are people whose interests are aligned with you and there's a risk of social cost if they defect against your interests. But like, that's kind of the key hump to get over is that if I was trusting my finances with my mom and dad, would they steal it from me? You know, and that's kind of the idea of entrusting something to a community leader. So they have all these federation, or they have these computers that are set up to have that ability, and they're storing it to you with like, a, you know, assume like the best practices for cold storage. And then on top of those servers, they also have other software that's running. And that's what like the FediMint protocol really is, is, you know, there's this one part that's a multi-sig that enables you to interact with it because the other part of the protocol issues you a separate monetary asset called eCash. Ecash is probably the most optimally efficient way to achieve privacy today. I read into some of the other technologies and they're either a long ways out or they'll probably never get implemented. Um, you know, when you think about there's like zero knowledge rollups really sounds like the only one that would be superior to technical level to something like an eCash privacy token, which I'll explain in a second. Um, but zero knowledge rollups, uh, you know, all the ones on Ethereum right now, they're just, you know, like everything else, there's a backdoor access key. They don't actually have the degree of trust loss that you have. The only thing that I think like a superior quality is um, they have the ability to um, uh, voluntarily exit from it. So like, that's kind of an interesting property is the ability to like, if you put an asset into a zero knowledge rollup, think about it kind of like a side chain. And then that enables you to do all these other things with it. Um, and it doesn't like bloat the main chain and have the same cost as the main chain. And it allows you to permissionlessly exit, assuming that they can actually implement these in a decentralized way. So like, that's the first thing is, I don't know if they're going to get there. I'm not, I, I don't know enough technically to actually get to that point. Um, but the other thing is too, is like, even if we were to implement a technology like that, it would require a soft fork in Bitcoin. We all know how hard those things are. And uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about how that would impact the base chain. So it's kind of like, um, I'm not super bullish on those, at least in the near term and maybe long term they do. But what's interesting about eCash is, you know, this technology has been around since the 80s. It was created by David Chom. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was actually like kind of the first like real, um, I write about this in my book, but it's like, you know, the first real attempt at creating like a digital e-cash by the cypherpunk movement. And, um, and it's funny because now it's like, you know, come full circle 40 years later, it's like now there actually kind of is, now that we have a digitally native um, money that's emerging, we can take this technology again and we can use it. So like you put into the multi-sig, you get issued e-cash, and then that goes into like, you know, your wallet. You have a wallet that um, operates on software that allows you to leverage e-cash. And then... Because we're using a different monetary asset, the FediMint protocol has like all these other different technologies around it that allow you to create things that are much more programmable. So it's like a, by pushing it into this new form, we can actually have all these other new forms of utility. We can create all these applications that you couldn't create directly on Bitcoin because Bitcoin's constrained in a lot of different ways. So like that's what's kind of compelling is that it's probably, 
you know, it's a much the the ease of the developer experience is a lot greater within this type of system. And you're effectively creating this form of digital privacy, which when I explain that, it's basically like when they issue you eCash, they're actually issuing you something that will if you, you know, you have a wallet on your phone. When they issue you eCash to your phone, you send your Bitcoin to them, they come back, you have eCash. It's literally living in the memory of your phone. It's not a blockchain or anything. It's just eCash on the memory of your phone. Now it has backups and stuff like that in case you lose your phone. But what what happens is is like you 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 know, you have your eCash, I have my eCash, I send some to you. And what happens is is by doing that, the technology will send that information to you and then it'll immediately check at the Federation servers whether or not that's already been redeemed. So the Federations don't know who has what. There's no blockchain tracking it. What they do know is that I issued this eCash. It has a unique ID. It went to this guy. And then if he goes and checks it and it hasn't already been redeemed, then they refresh it and give you a new one. Now that sounds complicated, but when it comes to like automated software, it's actually a simple process. What it allows you to do is to verify that that hasn't been double spent. So there's- So why do we even need a blockchain then? Right. So like, yeah, exactly. So like, why, why do we need a blockchain? It's because, you know, there's, um, there's, it doesn't have the same security properties, right? Right. So like, they, and that, that's the key thing is that, um, and we can get into this right now, but I think this, this could be part, uh, potentially better for later in the discussion. But basically it's like you, the, you're trusting that the Federation will issue the amount of e-cash that's proportional to the amount of Bitcoin they've received. They could issue more. They have that ability to do that. And, um, and because of that, like you don't have those degrees of certainty, which complicates it quite a bit. Um, and then that kind of gets into like free banking theory. And then there's quite a bit that I see emerging in the system that would naturally prevent some of the negative incentives or malincentives that could emerge from having that kind of an ability. Yeah, so we've kind of identified two of the issues I have with Fedimint. The first mm. one being is that we for years have said, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. We keep saying, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Mm. Now listen, if my dad needs Bitcoin, I'm gonna manage it for him. Right. There's zero scenario still for my dad. There's zero scenario still from my children. There's zero scenario still from my brother and sister, right? There's zero scenario still from anyone. But by moving to a multi-sig where we are trusting others to manage our keys for us, I think there are many scenarios where people may steal. They may go, you know what? I don't care about my social position. I can collude with Danny. We can move to Panama. We can run away with this Bitcoin. We're done. And I have no doubt in my mind, with all these different federations building up, there will be some scandals in there. Mm -hmm. This federation mm -hmm. in, I don't know, Buenos Aires, three guys ran off with it. This federation, yep. like there, there will be scandals, there will be scenarios. And why would, you know, I trust fidelity more than I would trust a federation of individuals. I trust, a I trust a company more mm. than I trust a federation mm -hmm. of individuals that isn't my family. Like if I built a trust model, I would go, the top, trust me, I can do my own. Mm. If I can't do my own, second one, and I have to do some alternative custody, I think I trust a, I trust a fidelity because with fidelity, my risk is more state capture. Yep. I don't believe there's a, a scenario where fidelity, that fidelity aren't lending out my Bitcoin, so there's no risk there. They aren't, they'll have good protocols in place for managing it. Mm -hmm. you know, Coinbase have proved themselves, despite not being the most popular exchange in the world, to be one of the most trusted places to leave your Bitcoin mm -hmm. if you're going to custody somewhere. And then if I had to go, like a Fediment, a federation to me, 
is below that one in terms of the trust level because mm-hmm. I'm having to trust individuals. Does that make? Do you get what I'm saying there, Danny? I get what you're saying. I don't know whether I agree, but I get what you're saying. I, I, and I, I, I think a lot of it comes down to the perspective, right? So, like when we say, like, what is a federation? What is a community? Yeah, that's also something that I think is going to be redefined potentially. Um, so, like from the perspective of, would I trust my mom or dad? Sure. Would I trust my pastor or would I trust my you know, gym coach or whatever it is. Like there's different extents to which you can think about it. What about commercial institutions that are leveraging this technology? Would you trust Fidelity more if um, you knew that their custodial operations had, you know, a certain setup that they did to maintain security properties so that nobody has any sort of, um, you know, full control over everything, which they probably do. So it's kind of like, well, maybe you are trusting a very similar concept in a certain form. It's more the legitimacy of the institution, the scale, and the Lindy effect for how long it's been mm. is what you're trusting. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's what I'm trusting. Yeah. And presumably, if you trusted the companies more, there's no reason that Kraken, Gemini, Coinbase, Fidelity could all set up a Fed of themselves and you had trusting all four companies rather than an individual one. I think right. that's a brilliant scenario. Exactly. So that's that, that, that's exactly the point. Like, what is a federation going to be? It's really just a technology that can be leveraged in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And so the second thing is on the e-cash level, um, the idea that people can print as much e-cash as they want and you would never know because it's not transparent yeah. means somebody can just essentially create print-free money. Right. That that one I, I I'm still struggling with. Well, yeah, until we set up our own federation, Pete, and then we can. <laughs> but but you know what I mean? It's like it's, <laughs> no, but if you think about it, it's like if the great thing about Lightning is when you put Bitcoin yep. in a uh, in a multi-sig wallet, to, you know, to um, to add Lightning to your wallet, you know, there's a like a uh, there's a one yep. for one, right? Yeah. And then when you convert your Lightning sats back into base chain, it's a one for one. You know that. How do you know what the one-for-one one is on eCash? So this is going to be pretty long-winded. Yeah, tell um, me. I think while we're actually still on that, because I've got a question for you. Yeah. If presumably, like if me and you set up a, a federation, we aren't registered, so we can't charge Peter to use our federation, right? Um. Oh, when you say not registered, because it's not like a... It's we're not, not for, we've not got like a financial, I don't know what the fucking license would be, but we, we don't have that license to be able to charge a fee to, for us to, cut him, us to custody his Bitcoin. I'm not an expert on the regulatory piece. I know that basically like if Bitcoin is a commodity um, and you're charging a you know fee for some of those things, then it gets a lot more complicated. I'm not sure exactly what you qualify as necessarily. But I, I'm presuming that if like say Gemini Kraken... Coinbase, whoever set up a federation, they could actually charge for that. Charge for theirs. Yeah, custodial service. Yeah, yeah, that is, you know, the decision making is held by parties with competing interests, which I think is an interesting model, and it's also, you know, kind of one of the ideas around like liquid is a side chain is like let's create a bunch of let's get a bunch of the uh, constituents in the industry to all set up this side chain that they need permission to adjust the rules of, which is I, I think it's interesting, and I, I think that despite liquid not getting a ton of traction over the years. Um, I don't think that we've seen the last of that concept. I could see that emerging in the long term. Um, it just I really like Liquid. I think it's a good idea. Yeah. yeah. I think it comes down to timing. And, and that's another piece around a lot of this is like, 
I talk about the term like irreducible complexity. Like there's probably a lot of ideas that are really valuable that have emerged, but the timing was off and there wasn't other things that needed to be built before it would work. Um, and how different is, is Liquid to Fediment? Because it seems very similar. Well, Liquid's a blockchain. Yeah. So, you know, there's... But, it's the, the, but it has a federation. Right. It's effectively a federation. That's where the idea came from right. that the Fediment protocol is using. Um, and I think the first was technically RSK in terms of implementation. Um, but yeah, there, there, there's these ideas that um, I think with, uh, you know, with the federation, it, it's going to exist in uh, a commercial form probably in a very different way than it does in a non-commercial form. Okay. And, and I think that'll be kind of like a key distinction of how it might bifurcate in terms of its use cases. Uh, but going back to your point, yeah. so what will prevent somebody from issuing too much e-cash? Well, if you go back to the community trust idea, um, and this is a good place to start, there is probably an incentive to not undermine the earnings of the entire community that you're in. And that's not something that you'd want to build upon, but it's likely true that that wouldn't happen. Also, if you think about it from the community model, um, there probably wouldn't be as much to gain. Like it would kind of quickly undermine your community as a whole. If you consider like 20 people and you just like inflate the value of something, you might've had a pretty good day or two, you know, Getting, but, but how would anyone know? Um, well, so the guardians would all have to collude between one another, and then prices would just start rising. Like you, you, it wouldn't even make sense; it would be so noticeable. You'd just be like, "Steve is just giving me like a hundred e cash, and I know he doesn't have that. Like, where did that come from? Like, it, it would be something but that would how be would you know that Steve shouldn't have a hundred e cash? So the only people there's technically all the different servers of the federation are like they're tracking the different issuance that they're making of eCash. None of them have a perfect record and they have separate records from one another. Um, but the uh, they could voluntarily report it is one thing that could happen. Um, and that's possible. They could say, I've issued this quantity of eCash between the different servers. And you can come up with a pretty good idea of how much eCash has been issued. Um, but it's still something that, yeah, like you don't have 100% certainty of like, I think, and I guess I'm not certain of this point, I'd have to dig into it, but I don't think that you can actually have like 100% certainty on proof of reserves with it. Uh, digitally native proof of reserves, you can always have somebody who's like, you know, issuing a loan based on the multi-sig completely outside of the system. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, it's like, we're going to have to go super basic here. Yeah. We're a community, right? But say there's a hundred people in this community, but thus four control the multi-sig, right? Yeah. And all these people have, I don't know, put a hundred Bitcoin into this, into our fediment. Yep. Okay. Does everyone get issued e-cash based on the amount of Bitcoin that went in? Yes. That's the idea, but theoretically they can issue more. Yeah. So, yep. so what I'm saying is like, so for that hundred Bitcoin that went in, there's a hundred eCash that can go out, mm -hmm. right? But what stops? And say we all put ten Bitcoin in each, us four, and the other sixty Bitcoin came from the other hundred people. And then say we issue everyone their, you know, eCash, and we're meant to get ten eCash each, but we turn around and go, let's just do eleven. Yeah. How the fuck does anyone know? No, I, I think that there's, it's going to be hard for people to notice that. There are ways that that can emerge. So like you can have federations that are voluntarily reporting. 
how much they've actually issued. I'm not sure how it works at a technical level with like verifying that, but you could have a federation that opts in to say like the fe- the federation as a whole, all the eCash that's been issued on their servers can say, here's how much we've issued. So I think that, you know, we'll probably have some sort of, you know, if we assume the system at scale for this particular point, we'd probably have some sort of system where if you want to be a part of something, only if it's verifiable, you could have something where like the amount of e-cash is verifiable. There's probably a way that you can have that set up uh, because there is memory of it on the servers. And the different Different fediments, are there eCash compatible with each other? No, and like that's another big thing. So I think like the best way for me to explain how I think this will build out is to just like jump into the theory. But it's basically like we'll have a bunch of, you know, if we assume a world where there's, you know, a million different federations that are all issuing their own eCash, basically all the process works is everybody within that federation, they're all trading amongst each other their own eCash. But if they want to trade their eCash to another federation, what they're using is the Lightning Network. So they're going to have these operators called Lightning Gateways. And that's basically like a Lightning company, like a Lightning service provider. And they're going to act as a market maker. So uh, that term basically means in finance, if you have an institution that stands ready to indiscriminate, not indiscriminately, but to uh, always buy and sell an asset based on a spread and they adjust their spread based on their perception of risk, but they make the market, they make, they're always a buyer or seller for you. That's effectively what these guys are going to be doing for eCash. Like a money changer. Right. So what they're doing is they're accepting eCash from Federation A, and then they're sending a lightning payment over to Federation B of the equivalent amount. But if you're the user, yeah, and you go onto this website and you're like, cool, I want to buy this shit. I want to buy this bottle of water. Yeah. It's 0.0 whatever eCash. I don't need to know what federations that's part of. I will just pay right. and all that should be done. All, in the all, all, all that shit gets done. There's costs associated with it. I think a simpler way of thinking about this too that isn't part of how it's structured but could potentially emerge. It's basically like they're using the um, they're using the Lightning Network as a way of forwarding payments, which is kind of like almost like a scaling mechanism to some degree, but like, um, and it creates more fungibility. But you could also just effectively have a market maker who doesn't even use the Lightning Network and they just sit there and say, I'll accept A and then I'll give, you know, eCash to B. And they hold a balance of like all the different federations around the world. And they're constantly just like swapping the different ones to keep everything fungible between one another. And they might say, oh, Federation A you know, we have knowledge or we, you know, are part of this community or something. We think that you're doing something sketchy. So like if you're a market maker, then you're, uh, you're integrated with the software. You have like a knowledge of how much eCash you received on balance from them. You have a lot of like access to information with people. And because of that, it gives you a better, like if there was somebody doing some like crazy shit where they're just like, we're going to hyperinflate our eCash, then the market makers would be knowledgeable of that. And they're not just going to like indiscriminately Because, okay, let's say that you've been working with this community and um, you know how much of the um, on-chain multi-sig Bitcoin exists and you're processing a certain amount of transactions every single day through them, then you can look at like volumes and you would be, it'd be pretty easy to tell if um, things are starting to get abnormal. There's like indicative information. Also going back to the point, maybe a market maker says, we're only going to deal with this federation if they're reporting like the total amount of eCash issued to us. But you could get into scenarios and you're like, all right, I want to buy this. I can't buy this because Mm -hmm. that market maker doesn't work with this. I don't mean to be a dick. Like not at all. I think it's, it just yeah. my problem with Fediment, it just feels like it, one, it's got a lot of holes in it. It's overcomplicating things. And uh what was the third thing I didn't like about it? That it seems to be like we're ditching long-held principles and beliefs about Bitcoin. 
to establish it. Yeah. And I, I constantly, every time I come to it, I'm like, I don't get it. I don't get why yeah. like, Feddy Mint seems to have too many issues. I think that it's, um, here's, I, I agree with all those points. I think that the biggest risk to Feddy Mint is its complexity. Yeah. And because it, it's like, well, I haven't even spoken about all this yet, but I think that it's like a really, really big idea. And there's so many different moving parts, like what we're starting to talk about with some of this stuff. Um, but I think that uh, there is also a lot of benefits that can emerge and it's potentially an optimization of some of these things. So like, that's what gets me comfortable is that we're kind of optimizing around some things. Is it like at the end of the day, everybody can still self-custody. And, yeah. and like, let me be clear, when I talk about what I'm talking about, it's a lot more for like how I think applications and like banking functions will emerge. Uh, you know, there's gonna be a lot better self-custody things. People are gonna get more educated in that. The whole point is that we have enough self-custody to where the system remains, you know, permissionless so that we don't turn into digital gold 2.0. Like that's the whole point. Maybe that's 20% of all Bitcoin. Maybe that's 30%. I don't, I have no idea, but it needs to be as much as we could possibly make it based on the consumer utility trade-offs. And listen, dude, I get it. Right. Yeah. When I went to El Salvador, the thing that really stood out to me is that I, I own Bitcoin and I have a multi-sig cold storage solution and I live in a house made of bricks, which is locked and I can go to banks or other houses or offices or family places in other countries where I can get on a plane mm -hmm. and I can have quite a complex multi-sig which gives me like a very high level of security around my Bitcoin. Yep. Okay, so then I'm in um, Bitcoin Beach, I'm in El Zante and I see people who literally live in a tin hut. Yep. And it's like, well, firstly, even if you have a hardware wallet, where are you hiding it? Because someone can just peel the door off because it's made of fucking tin. Are yep. you burying it in the house? Like, what are you doing? And what if you want multi-sig? Like, you know, there is a privilege. There's a priv there was a privilege to being able to use multi-sig effectively. And so I get it. I, at the time, I like, I've even, I do, I'm sure I talked about this on the show. Didn't I talk about this? I yeah. was like, and in my head, I was like, do you know what I would want if I was them? I would want to trust someone like Blockstream to do this. Mm -hmm. So I think there is potential s solutions to this, yep. but I, I don't think it's Fediment. I think it is something like Liquid, mm -hmm. whereby you know, there is a federation that's built whereby uh, someone like Boxstream essentially becomes a banking provider and you store yep. your Bitcoin with them and, and then you maybe get like a liquid token, yep. which you can access and withdraw as, you, as and when you need like small amounts. Yep. Like that to me works. Fediment, I'm like, so I, it goes back to the point that Danny made earlier. He's just like, why can't a Fediment be a bunch of these other institutions combining together? Yeah. And like, that's the idea is like your vision of, you know, like Liquid or Blockstream or what they're doing. That's something that can exist within this ecosystem. And like, this comes down to, I, I think more of a, it's more of like a business aspect. Um, I think is kind of the argument here for like adoption, but um I think that, you know, you can have that exact property. Does it have to be a side chain technology or could it actually be like privacy e-cash, which is a benefit? I think that what we're going to see is lightning service providers are probably going to be setting up federations and operating within that. So they'll act as like the lightning gateways assisting with transactions. They'll probably also be like commercial banks, which is what you're thinking about. And maybe most people want to put their money in like commercial banks like that. And they want to do it through a federated system like that. And that would affect 
effectively be the advantages of where you're talking about with liquid. And then you like pair on privacy layers to that too, which I think is interesting. But I also see an avenue where there is community trust and we have community banking systems start to emerge with custody. I don't think that there isn't a market for that. I actually think it could be a lot larger. Sure, there's plenty of examples where it wouldn't make sense. Also in some of those ones you brought up, I think that like, you know, in like the mud hut example, it really comes down to mobile technology. And number one, this the... Um, the requirements of Fediment are probably going to be low enough in the near term to where it can be run like on mobile phone grade technology, very cheap. But also there's going to be like the ability to host and the keys just held on your phone or it's held wherever you want to hide it in your mud hut. Um, so like there's, there's a, there's a ton of ways that it can emerge. And I like, what I think is interesting is I think it's piecing together multiple technologies that allow people to choose this. So like going back to the eCash piece, let's say it starts and a bunch of people start issuing eCash and they all debase and a bunch of people get screwed over. This type of technology doesn't even have to use eCash. The programmability aspects are based around that. But, you know, at the end of the day, it could just be federations that are sending lightning payments to one another because right. like these federations have Bitcoin, E, they have Bitcoin technology, eCash technology, and Lightning technology on them. They could just say, we never even want to use eCash, and maybe that never takes off. Mm -hmm. I think that the reason that it probably will is that the programmability functions are actually probably going to be a lot better because um, there's not like the same degree of like capacity limitations on eCash. You can just do a lot more with it. And then the rest of the arguments I see for why I think it might get traction is just from like more of like a business angle. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting is... Uh, I think people think about a lot of these technologies in terms of like, you know, what created like an organic desire for these networks to grow, which is definitely a very, you know, it's the right way to be thinking about some of this stuff, but it's like, was there like an organic desire for Binance to become the largest exchange in the world? Or was it just because they did a shitload of business development all over the world and they were like pretty early? And like, I think that that's another interesting way for how you get like adoption in these things is like at the business angle, if these things start to emerge like that, then, um, you know, that can also give something a competitive advantage. So you, you probably want a combination of both. Um, but nonetheless, like, I think that Fediment has a lot of implications and it's really just like a base protocol technology. It's kind of similar how to like, you know, people think Noster is, you know, a lot of people think it's like Damus, like, cause that's the social media app that emerged on it. It's like, really, it's just like this simple relay tech. Um, but like when I first heard about it, I was like, oh, like Noster is like a social media thing. Uh, it's kind of like that, like Fediment started with like privacy um, and then there's like federations for communities. Oh, but like they're, they're, it's just a technology. There's, I, I mean, I don't know exactly how it's gonna grow. I just see a lot of avenues from which we could see different systems emerge within this technology. And maybe it's just like a liquid sidechain type system. This show is brought to you by Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep all my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi 2.0 makes Bitcoin privacy effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join like in Wasabi 1, this is all done automatically. So all you need to do is receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can send privately. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement, something, you know, I'm always moaning on about. Now, you also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't need to leak your IP address, and there is no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I'm taking a lot more seriously, and Wasabi 2 makes this so much easier. If you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W A S 
A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T.io. Next up, we have Fortress. Now, 4% of all Bitcoin transactions on an MOM basis go through Fortress, which equates to $7.7 billion since their inception in 2017, of which $3.6 billion happened last year, 2022, last year alone. Now, Bitcoin is more than just a holding asset. We see large organizations already using it in their day-to-day operations. And if you want to do this, you do not need to overhaul your system. You simply need to integrate Fortress to handle all your Bitcoin treasury operations. If you want to find out more about this, please head over to Fortress.com, which is F-O-R-T-R-I-S.com. Also today we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm not selling you Bitcoin right now, are you? I hope you're not. Now, I am also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I've also set up a DCA with twice monthly Bitcoin buys, and I've been stacking sats all through this bear market. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. And Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. What kind of use cases then do you see? Give me a, like we've talked about maybe it's like a community bank. It's maybe a, a, like an era free bank. Yeah, yeah. But you also said actually it might be more like a business application. Well, no, not as so. I was saying more like if it gets traction, right. it could be from like the business angle. Um, but there's, uh, you know, I guess what I would say is like one of the primary angles is we have communities and community finance in Africa. There's a lot of microfinance. Um, what I think could be really interesting is like let's assume maybe a path to this in the next decade. Um, if you have uh, enough of this technology, garner enough attraction, what do people want? Well, they want to they, they use Bitcoin for its medium of exchange function, not for its store of value function down there. Um, d- despite the idea, it's just the volatility is too expensive. But nonetheless, like the Lightning Network for remittance payments and for general transaction costs is quite a bit cheaper. In fact, federated eCash transactions would probably be even cheaper than that too, which is interesting. But, you know, let's just say it's Lightning. Um, so like that's that's valuable for people to be using, but um, then it comes down to okay, well we got the stability of the asset now, and people want dollars for kind of their store value function because of that. So you know maybe you you could have you could have stable coins get integrated into the system. That's certainly possible. Um, what I think is also interesting is like you know like Fediman did a hackathon and. Um, there's this idea of like stability pools. And you know, these kind of ideas existed in crypto in the last cycle, but it's like you pool liquidity together and you set up effectively what's like a derivative contract between two parties um, and it settles based on a market price. So like all that means is like you can find stability by finding buyers and sellers in a market to agree to pay you a certain amount of Bitcoin based on a price. So like everybody pools their liquidity. I say, I wanna have stability in my Bitcoin at 24,000. And I lock that price in for the next epoch. 10 minutes later. And at the end of that 10 minutes, if the price of Bitcoin rose to 26,000, then I pay the extra amount of Bitcoin to the guy on the other side who took the risk and he didn't get stability. He increased his volatility. So like basically there's this idea that, um, 
they could use this, the programmability of this system to create things like stability pools that could actually create stability within Bitcoin. You pay a fee for it. And that's a huge question. Like, this is a new idea. So mm. like, maybe it's way too expensive. Bitcoin's too volatile. People have to pay too much for stability. But when you look at the transaction costs and the interest rates that people are paying down in Africa, it it's pretty high. So like, m maybe not. Like, mm. I don't know how expensive the market has to get for it to not make sense for people. Um, so like, if you have to pay 2% a year, 5% a year to like hold Bitcoin, use the Lightning Network and keep it stable, like that's a completely fair trade-off. Mm. It's totally worth it. And, and I think that a lot of people would get on board with that. But I don't even think that's like the biggest idea. I think the biggest idea is that like, people are always talking about microfinance in Africa. And it's like, okay, cool, like Lightning Network can help with microfinance and small payments and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, Africa has a capital problem. They, 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 they need people to be investing more money in Africa. So like what I think is interesting is that um, if we think about if we remove Bitcoin and everything from the picture and we think about this from like traditional markets, it's like a lot harder through those avenues. What I could see is that like if we did have something like what I'm talking about with like stability pools and this ecosystem build out down there, that creates this very seamless way for capital to start moving down to Africa. So like if some sort of, I don't know, envision a microfinance like yield product. And there's a bunch of people in the US who are like, oh, cool, I'll throw money into that pool. Like they're, they're doing all these investments and maybe it totally blows up and doesn't work out. But I think it's interesting because like it could actually be like an interesting avenue to attract capital to things that had not existed before. And it could create a funnel of capital. So I think like yeah. that's kind of compelling. And you, and you pair that with this idea of like emerging capital markets native to this system. I think that's also a really, really big idea. And when we think about, everybody talks about, you know, like store value and medium of exchange for Bitcoin. Um, unit of account's a huge deal. Why is the US dollar the global reserve? Unit of account, that's the most deeply entrenched form of monetary function you can have. Once you get set in as that, like you're good. So like if we start using things where that's that stability pool concept, that's just like, you know, the initial application of it. But all it is, is it's, it's contracts being set up to track an asset price and settling between people. You could track any publicly traded price with that. You could turn Bitcoin into a reserve for a bunch of different, any sort of publicly traded asset category. So like, um, that's pretty compelling. Like we could have like a lot more capital markets in Bitcoin to achieve like a reserve function. Um, that, that's a really big deal. That could create a lot more scale in it. That could make it a lot less volatile. Yeah. So like there's there, there's a ton of different things. These are all very long-term, yep. but like that's kind of what I'm seeing is potential here. And it, and it doesn't have to be people in mud huts. It doesn't have to be, you know, a bunch of, um, may, maybe it centralizes, right? And that's one of the key risks I see with Lightning is it's a state channel system. It requires a ton of liquidity. So when we have a benefit of scaled liquidity, Lightning has a natural incentive to centralize over time. And maybe it doesn't become too centralized, but eCash doesn't. In fact, eCash starts to work less as it scales. It makes more sense to keep those types of systems smaller at a federated level. Does it work at scale? Yeah. But like, I think that, that the eCash systems, when we look at it from a systemic view, if we had a system of federations all over the world, it's still at a systemic level would maintain a pretty decentralized state to the degree that we would need to keep this um, uh, permissionless like we would in a self-custodied world where everything's peer-to-peer. -peer. It would still kind of maintain that property. Whereas if everything starts going into like lightning service providers in the long term and none of these other technologies emerge, you know, it could get pretty centralized. Yeah. And like that's kind of scary to systemic level. I don't know why Fedimin wouldn't also centralize because let's say 
we had our own little mm. uh, federation in here. And to then interact with other people, we need that market maker in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, now, if there was a huge one run by like big companies, the fees for those the, for the market maker for them would presumably be much lower because of the added trust, yep. as opposed to just some randoms who have a federation. Mm -hmm. Now, if if you're then trying to like interact with other federations, that's going to cost more every time that I want to transact with, say, PubKey user like at one of these big company federations yep. and I, I need to swap my eCash out so yep. I can interact with them. Every single transaction is going to cost me more because I'm in a smaller pool with less trust. Yeah. So does that not lead to more people just joining the pool that has more trust with these market makers because then every transaction in your entire life becomes a little bit cheaper? Right. So I think you're just describing would lightning just be used instead or would you... Or just one larger federation. Yeah, which which uh, is yeah, th there's certainly possible. Like th there there could definitely be like a very large federation that's utilized for that purpose. But I think at the end of the day, you still have like a scale. There's limitations to scaling on the custodial angle, so that is something that will probably remain small over time because of how trust is kind of like optimized within a smaller community level. If that makes sense, it does. But so, so is there like a a maximum size for a federation to be like? Is there an optimal size? Oh, no. Well, it's, it, it's, I don't think there's like an optimal size, right? Like we're just like, we're looking at a t technology and applying it to different use cases, right? So like there could be an optimal size for your family. There could be an optimal size for your broader community. There could be an optimal size for a commercial like institution, like what you're talking about. There's like a lot of different ways that it could build out four different functions. But then the smaller you are, the more it costs you to interact with other federations. Yeah, so I not necessarily. I mean, you could just say like I want to use eCash to privately transact intra federation. And if I'm interacting with other federations and I think it's too expensive, then I can just pay them with Lightning directly. I still I have a see. Lightning wallet and I still have an eCash wallet. So it's going to come down to it's a bit like right now, I have a, a multi-sig cold storage wallet. Right. I have two uh, single hardware wallets, which have got a small amount of Bitcoin for day-to-day -day stuff, one for the football club, mm -hmm. uh, one for uh, what Bitcoin did. Actually, I've got a personal one as well. And then I also have like a couple of Lightning wallets. With, like I've got a, like a variety yeah. of things. I, it feels like uh, like I might also have some eCash within like FediMint, within sorry, some federation that I use for other transactions. So yep. there's like different bits that you start interacting with for different reasons. Right, right. And the, the, the point is to have it like in a wallet technology to where this is automated enough. Cause like the way that we're talking about it at a fundamental level, it seems like really complicated, but like if it's automated enough within a wallet, a good comparison is like, you know, your Bitcoin cold storage or in a multi-sig or whatever it is, that's something that would be like your long-term savings that you're putting a lot more effort into for like self-custody potentially, or maybe that's done through a community. But with like eCash, it's like, I mean, it's called cash for a reason. It like actually works. It's like on your phone. So it's working like you have like cash in your wallet and like you're probably not storing all of your money in cash. You're using that for day-to-day -day transactions when you're walking around or whatever it is, or you're paying your buddy or something. So like that's another way that you could think about it in terms of the comparison. Like you'll have different systems that you're using for optimizing. Maybe when you're paying on Lightning where you know it's going to somebody over in China who I'm going to have to go through a router, uh, a Lightning gateway or something, maybe there is a high enough fee to where you care. 
there. In which case, maybe you're just using Lightning through your wallet to make those payments and you're not using eCash. So like the way Moon obfuscates like a lot of that complication away where this can be on-chain or Lightning, there'll just be an additional thing that is also obfuscated away. And right. it ju you just kind of pick the cheapest way of paying every time. Right. There, the, the, it, it, like once again, this is all prospective, but yeah, I think that, yeah, that, that, that that's sense. definitely how it could work. Yeah. Huh. Okay. I still don't entirely buy federations because like, the other thing i'm thinking about is like okay say eric i'm like him you know we've had some beers oh fuck by the way i haven't actually paid for that food no i paid for it how oh, did you yeah huh. so i owe you some e-cash <laughs> yeah so we're like but so like i want to pay danny and like i go to pay him it's like he has a different e-cash yeah yeah and that, that that's where like the lightning routing piece of it comes in but, but I that's don't all want, automated yeah like, i don't want to know any of this right i just want yep. to go Trh. so what if what if the e what if the federation he's part of uh, issues two to one eCash because that's just the way they want to do it. Whereas mine's one to one against Bitcoin. So there's two incentives for that, right? Like there's the incentive of federation. This is just like a broader idea of like, what's the incentive for fractional reserve banking? Like there is an incentive that, and this is something that I think could also be a vector that makes the system more attractive. Like what made crypto so attractive? Because they were able to create seniorage through token issuance, right? Mm. It's a similar concept. It's the exact same economic concept to like fractional reserve in a certain sense. Like you're creating a new monetization that you're able to leverage because it's costless for you to create. So like there could be, and this is why what I see is an incentive for like a potential for fractional reserve. There's an incentive, like why would I want to join a federation and use their eCash? Because I can get a cheap loan or because there's some sort of like rate of interest that's attractive to me about that. And like you could see economies start forming around that. The question is, is it sustainable? Hold on, this is, we're going into the world of free banking again. Exactly. But why did the world of like free banking led to central banking because of run on the banks, right? Yep. And so aren't we just recreating something that kind of broke? Right. So like, and that's where I, you know, kind of back to the last recording we did, um, it goes down into a lot of theory around like what regulates a free banking system. And when we think about these systems, we have precedent from like the 19th century. So that's something that was a very different system. It wasn't as competitive. Information wasn't as transparent. It was much easier for these things to be controlled. When you apply that theory to this digitally native system, the game's kind of changed quite a bit. Things are a lot more incentive. Information's much more transparent. We're using a base layer monetary asset that can be withdrawn into self-custody and traded peer-to-peer, -peer, you know, at arms length transactions. So like that changes the incentives of the whole game. The reason that these systems centralized in like free banking was typically because of government encroachment where they use scapegoats like, you know, fractional reserve banking destroyed this. You need us to help you so that we can do the exact same thing. And eventually we're going to turn into the fiat money, you know, 20 years later. So like that whole scheme was more, um, it's a lot less possible to occur. Like Bitcoin being an immutable monetary base layer it, it, it kind of, it eliminates the possibility if Bitcoin monetizes that we would have fiat money again. And then the question is, if we have a banking system built out and it's like a free banking type system, will that be so centralized that, you know, it ultimately destroys the system? Well, the market can determine that as long as people can opt into peer-to-peer -peer trading through whether it's like base chain or through lightning, then it ultimately is something that will prevent that system from ever getting to the central bank level. But I don't think the technology could prevent it from getting to like a fractional reserve level yet. I, I, there's arguments, there's things like, when you go into like what prevented it, you had like certain parties, like you had clearing houses, which was the primary thing. Um, and those emerged because competition in free banking was very high and different banks would attack each other by 
buying up a bunch of their notes and re redeeming them all at once and trying to put their competitors into insolvency and then acquiring the market share of their competitors. So like that was happening more frequently, like when a free, free banking system emerged. And then because of that, like we had clearinghouses step in that were kind of like netting the payments between all the free banks in the middle and they were membership based. So you had to have a reputation to become a part of it and you had to abide by certain practices. You couldn't do crazy shit and be, be a part of it. If you started doing that, you get kicked out of the membership of the clearinghouse. And that was a huge cost to you because clearinghouses were very helpful. They, net, they made it a lot more efficient. They would net payments between everybody. They uh, would set interest rates. They would help, um, you know, it was kind of like this, it was the private market solution that central banks were you know ultimately used to say no government should control that cog in the wheel that like kept everything together so like those were helpful in their reputation and membership based if we have a system that's very efficient and i i see a lot of ways that like if we have a free banking system emerge you know putting fedimin aside whatever the technology is um i see a lot of ways that we'll have certain functions that are very parallel to that like the proof of reserves topic that's just like a reputation-based form of inf information transparency that people are trying to create. So like we'll probably have an institution that emerges that's similar to a clearinghouse or multiple institutions that are like standards. If we have a free banking system, they'll say, okay, if you want to be a part of this, then you could use, you know, say this federation that has this stamp of approval from, you know, whatever the proof of reserve company is or the clearinghouse type functions. We'll have these guys that are monitoring, they're tracking, they're like potentially auditing, they're acquiring federations to like report eCash issued. And that would probably be for things that are like higher scaled that has like a large customer base where moral hazard is much like greater of a risk. So like, that's one thing. But the primary thing that I think is really interesting um, that could like make the system potentially very efficient to the point where we may not even see fractional reserve is because you know, with things like the Lightning Network being able to create transaction throughput so rapidly at such a low cost, um, we have this like very efficient mechanism for trading. And I think that we'll probably see a class of like solvency speculators on the system. So the point about how co competitors would try to put each other into bankruptcy, it'll be like a lot easier to put a fractional reserve institution into bankruptcy. Because when we look at technologies like that emerged in DeFi of like flash loans, where it's like if there's a publicly traded pool of liquidity and we have a verifiable way of creating an arbitrage trade, then you could actually take out a loan that would instantaneously allow you to loan that entire liquidity pool. So what does that mean? We can create arbitrage trades with very high ability to leverage those trades, which means you could probably put a fractional reserve bank out of business really quickly and easily if you could scale the loan to a certain size. So like that would make fractional reserve just hard to run in a private market. And the reason that that would exist is because you could make a lot of money putting these things out of business and then shorting them. So like that is much more long-term, right? That assumes that there's an ability to short a bank that is a federation and has some sort of publicly traded token security, whatever it would be. But um, that's an example of something that I think like the system would just be very efficient in a digitally native way. People always have the ability to opt out into peer-to-peer self-custody if they want. So like that puts checks and balances on the system that just have never existed before. Like in old free banking systems, like what are you going to do? You're going to go carry your gold around and like, you know, lug it. And like some people probably did do that. Is, is it almost like a, a financial system singularity? Ooh, that's, ooh. Do you, do you understand what I'm trying yeah. to get to at that point? They're like- There's the title. That's kind but of you, but you understand what I'm I'm getting at with when I say that, right? Right. We've we've reached a point of efficiency to where all of like yeah we we've hit the singular we 
I don't want to say perfected, but we've optimized for it. Because we have ultimate transparency. Mm. We have uh, ultimate arbitrage. We have massive liquidity. So yeah. everything just becomes so efficient that uh, any fuckery gets gets exposed or get you know just gets traded out so there's no right. there's no because a lot of the fuckery that happens in the system is it's because it's kind of hidden yep like hidden like like let's look at what happened in 2008 financial crisis right that happened one of the many reasons it happened one of the large reasons was the uh, AAA ratings of these essentially yep. junk bonds yep. you wouldn't have this this because this because everything is just transparent and open and every arbitrage opportunity would close. That, that, that's an interesting point. I mean, it, it, I, I don't, I don't want to go that far. I, it's still that, I wouldn't call it the singularity. You know, it's yeah, like if yeah. we got a curve, we're getting up the curve. But um, Just much more efficient. Much more efficient. It's just a lot more efficient. There's a lot more information transparency. It'd be much more competitive and the ability to exit the system exists. Like that's a key innovation of Bitcoin is the ability to exit our financial system basically means pull your money out in cash and try to operate in an online digital world with that. So we did, now we have it. The two things that like are on my mind is like, what is the scenario where the little guy can get fucked? Mm -hmm. Where does that exist within this? And um, how much do they technically have to understand? Like Nostra, I like signed up, I liked it. People are like, oh, you need to put in your lightning URL. I was like, what? how do I get mine? So I went into my blue wallet. That isn't a lightning URL. So you can only get one from, turns out, wallet of Satoshi. It's only because I went to NVK and said, look, explain to me this shit so I don't have to look it up. And he told me. Yeah. There's still lots of technical hurdles for people. Totally. You know. I mean, I mean Gandalf, who's pretty technical, shout out Gandalf. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not dumping on you here, but yeah, like you are. Yeah. But he like, he exposes <laughs> private key. Like that's yeah. there's there's clear like flaws in that. Clear wizardry. <laughs> to totally. The consumer experience is so far off. Like yeah. it, it, and that's one of the things that I think is interesting is like kind of going back to that point around like why did Binance get so much adoption? Like we need a protocol that works on the back end that's creating a developer environment that's more seamless than like, you know, going on Ethereum and learning Solana as a coding language in order to be able to implement this stuff. We need something that'll work for like guys, you know, JavaScript around the world or whatever it is. So like we need that happening. We also need like business development that's like building this shit out and creating a good consumer experience and kind of bridging the gap between this peer-to-peer protocol-based world that we see and then um, the practical reality of we need really good marketing and we need a really good consumer experience and we need to finance that pretty heavily to make it happen. So it's like when you when you put if you can if that all that gets combined in like a certain way, we need to find we we, we can create something like a better example is like you know Ethereum created this massive ecosystem of developers and it's like if we get that then like you know when I talk to businesses. Um, that are like pitching a startup, they're always like, you know, it's like a bunch of developers and then they'll say, like, here's our business plan for how we're gonna get user adoption. And it's like, you know, okay, so we gotta go out and we gotta get boots on the ground and we gotta do that. And like, that needs to be something that's like scaled and centralized for a protocol entirely. Like developers should just be like, I'm gonna build on the app store and then, you know, people can go to the app store and buy my app. They shouldn't be as worried about distribution and acquiring users. They should be more worried about building a really good app and then having that distribution and users already set up for them through some sort of protocol. That will solve a lot of problems and probably create a lot of efficiency in this. Because like right now there's always lightning applications that it's just like, got a sponsorship here. You know, we're gonna set up a POS terminal and get a bunch of guys, you know, on the ground over here. And it just, it, it's complicated. That needs to be like centralized and pushed into like a primary initiative to get that consumer 
consumer UX and really push that out. It's a long-term prospect and it's going to require quite a bit of money. But if there's some sort of company that can really get a good global footprint, that's like sending applications to the world that are, um, you know, all aggregated within a single platform for them, like an app store in some form, like that's probably where we really start to see streamlined consumer adoption. I don't fully understand it, everything. And I think that's kind of a consistent experience for me in Bitcoin. <laughs> is that like, this is what you're talking about is because you natively understand this yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the point I'm trying to make really is, is that uh, if you're trying to explain this financial system to your mom, my dad, they seem to be uh, in a similar kind of position, but a lot of people, they're going to struggle with this idea. I think a better question, therefore, to you is like, what is the end goal? What, you know, you said yeah. it's apolitical global money, but what is that as an experience for, for everyone, yeah. for, for all the you know, plebs and peasants of the world? Like, what is the experience and what are the benefits going to be to them? You have an application on your phone that's just as simple as like, you know, anything else that you'd be using, like your social media apps and all that, except for on the back end of all of that is just a, it's just a decentralized financial infrastructure, Bitcoin, Lightning, maybe it's federations, maybe it's not. Um, and, and then you also have, you know, the, uh, a, 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 a a primary group of developers that are all very native and understand this ecosystem that are like constantly churning out updates and constantly like building that out. Like, I think one of the interesting things is like people argue against crypto because they're centralized. And I totally agree. It's because they try to act like they're not. And like, that's a thing. But I honestly think that like this decentralization narrative really matters in certain areas. And like, there's a lot of areas where, you know, like smart contracts probably don't need a global state for like most, if you think about how contracts work, they don't need that. They need a legal system. Like that's what makes a contract effective. They probably, nobody wants like, their contract being observable by everybody. It makes sense in like publicly traded markets for assets, but for like most other contract applications, it's like, I want my contract to be private. I don't want like all the details of it on the Ethereum blockchain. So like, I, I think a lot of these things are gonna be optimized more around like actual companies and software companies that have that consumer efficiency rather than trying to fix it and uh, you know, bring out this development, try to eventually decentralize it. It's just like these things are always growing, always changing. You have to be pushing software updates. Trying to create a decentralized system for that just seems like way too costly and you're never gonna provide the consumer experience that they expect. And how, how do you think regulation keeps up or do you think this actually leads to a less regulated world? I think that if we get an apolitical form of global money, it's going to be probably a lot less regulated. I think it'll be because of the information transparency thing. That's key. It's just like consumers know what they want and they know kind of what they're dealing with in a lot of different ways. Obviously, there's plenty of ways to manipulate that. Like your, your point about like the AAA ratings and the financial crisis, that could be a major risk that emerges in the system that I'm talking about, about reputation-based things. I mean, where there's money, there's power. People can get paid. It's not that I think that like free markets have plenty of problems. It's just no. a, it's a price that you pay for freedom. Um, people get hurt, things go wrong. There's still negative incentives and there's always fringe markets where things go really bad. But the idea is that like, you know, it's somewhat of a utilitarian argument of is the, you know, greater good of everything else worth all of that? And it's a choice that people will make and we want to provide the technology for people to, to make that decision and be informed. And, and uh, reputation built on algorithms and transparency it's going to be a lot better than uh, algorithm. I'm sorry, reputation built on ratings coming from centralized bodies with an right. office on a street, right? Who 
just don't do that job properly. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah, it, it, yeah. Which is a great point. It's just like if you could have. Well, I guess I, I don't know. I haven't really thought this through much, but yeah, like the more that it would be software based and something that's you know like you, you, you like the, I guess that's kind of an interesting application for like AI potentially is because that's what AI is really good at. I don't even want to call it AI. I just think it's more like really efficient information aggregation. Yeah, um, and like that would be a great example of it. Like you could just have this AI running on your phone that's scraping web information every time you use an app. Like it just can naturally like produce information you ask it about something that you're using. That would be kind of interesting. I think that ideally, the ideal world is that Bitcoin doesn't have problems that require other networks to integrate with it to solve those problems. That's the ideal world. We've realized that that's not the case, but Bitcoin solved the primary issue of not being able to create fiat money. So, the, so that what, what's really important is that we get Bitcoin to a scale fast enough so that it ultimately isn't co-opted into a form of digital gold 2.0, which is very important because that's coming. And I think that that needs to come in somewhat of the near term, which means I think a lot of these protocols, while they're probably not gonna be perfect, some of these emerging protocols, I think can provide a viable path towards that in the amount of time that we would need that to occur. Because I don't think we can really still sit around and just wait for Bitcoin to monetize naturally. I still think that there's enough attack vectors to where it might end up, it could become like a digital gold. So like, if we want it to be an apolitical monetary system, then we need to create enough pass and consumer experience and like have some sort of like organic natural consumer adoption that builds over time rapidly because there's things, there's protocols and applications on those that are enabling that growth rapidly enough. So like, that's kind of the first thing is that I think that it's like, ideally, I think a system of like e-cash with like, you know, this, this note on top of Bitcoin, um, and maybe it's not used, but ideally it's like, of course we wouldn't want that, but it's just like, this is probably like the right solution. We can sit around and wait for zero knowledge rollups and see if those eventually get there and see if we can get Bitcoin through another soft fork to implement something like that. And then people can get the privacy that they want. I don't know how long that's gonna be. I don't know if that's gonna be in time. We do have a kind of like a solution that's optimized a bit. It's gonna have trade-offs, but we do know that like in free banking systems, as long as you don't have governments encroach and they, the system's allowed to sift itself out, like these things, all, all private markets have edge markets of like fraud and abuse and manipulation. But as long as, you know, a large proportion, 80, 90% of the market is functioning based on a profit motive or something that is related to, you know, like the community model of like the best interest at a smaller scale, then, you know, th that's something that I think can self-regulate enough to where those trade-offs probably wouldn't be too bad. And, uh, and they probably will bring so many other benefits that could spur adoption. I think like the programmability piece will be really huge for that. And if we can have that move rapidly enough and we can build, get enough developers and enough building and we can actually build that out, get the consumer experience, distribute that enough throughout the world to where, you know, people have an application on their phone that's actually kind of doing everything that they want. Um, and we find a way to get stability, automized, going back to the stability pool idea. Like if, if these things can actually emerge within the next like five to six years, then that might, that, that, that'll probably be quick enough to really make this happen. But that's probably what I'm most concerned about is like, we got to move. And, um, and there's a lot of people working very hard to make that happen. Mm. But I think that there's going to be trade-offs along the way. And, uh, and, you know, everybody's free to choose exactly what they want, but, you know, we need to make freedom money work. Do you think he's working on a second book? I mean, you've, he seems like you've done the work. Yeah. <laughs> Is this a second book? 
Uh, I don't even know if this is like a book because it'll just end up being really wrong. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, it's a, it's a paper. Maybe it's a Substack. Like, yeah. And I think the next one should be the transition from now to to this future. Yeah. So the, the only part of the bridge that I'm thinking about, it came up when we had Amanda Cavallero yesterday talking about, is that I think the bridge is essentially going to less and less fiat currencies. I just think we're going to see multiple yeah. currency failures and people are going to start adopting. You know, we have the euro across Europe. I know that we don't have it in the UK. We have the pound. We have, I think the yen survives for a certain period. And I think obviously the dollar survives the digital yuan. But I think there will be a battle of countries adopting uh, the dollar versus the digital yuan. And I think we'll just have less and less sovereign currencies because I think people will not trust their sovereign currency. Yep. And they will start adopting Bitcoin or dollar or double, dollar stable coins. Mm. And I just, I feel like that is the transitionary period just that's what I think will happen. Yeah, the and the, the I and I kind of left that out in what I was just talking about. But yes, like the game theory is like the primary incentive that I think will keep things at bay. But at the end of the day, like if we do see some sort of crackdown globally, I I, I guess a better way of saying is I don't want to be, I don't want to be, or I I'm not certain that the game theory is foolproof. Like, I think the game theory is the best argument. It's a strong argument. I'm very confident in it, but it's definitely not something I'm certain of. And the better we can make, like, consumer experience and wide global adoption move, like, I think that that kind of de-risks that environment pretty quickly. Because what happens yeah. when the U.S. shows up at your door with guns? And we got a lot of guns all over the world. Like, there, there's, and, and it doesn't even need to be guns. It could be digital warfare. It can be economic warfare. Like, there's a lot of avenues in which they can bully the shit out of some of these countries. And I think that sometimes we're not practical enough about some of that. And like, you know, they can make a phone call tomorrow and bad things could happen to El Salvador. Yeah. Like that, that, that's something that people need to be mindful of. And, you know, they're probably going to try to make an example out of somebody too. Isn't it wild we get to live through this it's period? Yeah. And kind of at the forefront of it in some ways in that we get to have these conversations and that people are going to listen to them and, and yeah. care about what's happening. I think it's fucking wild. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome, man. I Yeah, like I, I've never felt more excited than when I jumped into all this. Like it just every day is like, it's purposeful. Yeah. Too much responsibility in these hands right now. <laughs> <laughs> need to pass it on. Eric, man, honestly, really, really glad I've got to know you. I um, just value everything you're doing in your work, and I value you as a friend as well, mate. So, look, uh, you're always welcome on the show. Nice watch, by the way. I still got to give you that hug, man. Oh, man. You feeling better? Yeah, well, yeah, maybe, but, like, <laughs> you know why. But, uh, yeah, we'll talk about that off uh, once the mics are done. But, listen, uh, people, go and buy Bitcoin, the seventh property. Eric's incredible book it's in the show notes and go and follow eric on twitter even though he's not tweeting much at the moment <laughs> and his sub stack when he launches anything anything you want to pimp uh nah that's pretty much it yeah I, I, i'll start tweeting again in a few months i just been head down but yeah thanks for having me on guys appreciate it always welcome dude all right come on how good was that how good is eric i love having eric on the show i think he's one of the future minds of Bitcoin. Uh, he wrote an excellent book. If you haven't checked it out, Bitcoin, The Seventh Property. It's linked in the show notes. An amazing book he put together. Um, so, great subject. Love talking about the future financial system. Love thinking about how a future financial system with Bitcoin works. But I am still struggling with the Fedimint idea. I know a lot of Bitcoiners are super bullish on there. But for me, 
it still gives up one of those fundamental aspects of Bitcoin, the not your keys, not your coins. And it seems like everyone's kind of okay with this infediment. So maybe I'm missing something here. Anyway, I'm going to get Obi back on the show to dive deeper into this at some point. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this. If you've got any questions about this or anything else, please do hit me up. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com or go and jump into our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash whatbitcoindid.com.